Welcome to Family History Mysteries, a podcast that tells the stories uncovered through family history research, the unexpected stories of everyday people. I'm an avid family historian who's been compiling my family tree for over 15 years, with now nearly 20,000 people collectively recorded in my trees. This episode is titled The Trucker. Just a warning that this podcast contains the names of deceased Aboriginal persons. Also in the process of me reading through some historical records, there are some terms that are connected to Aboriginal people that we would not consider to be acceptable today. Please take heed that they are direct quotes from articles of the time. There are times when you do family history that a person that isn't genetically connected to the family, but has been part of the family in some way, takes your imagination and the person that is the subject of today's story was featured in a family photo of my great-grandparents on their property just outside of Denoyquin and his name was Archie Murphy and I'm going to endeavour to tell his story today. Archie Murphy is in a Bayless family photo, my great-grandparents Philip and Matilda Bayless and some of their children. And he's in the, the right-hand side of the photo standing, looking very smart in a suit. And my grandmother explained to me that Archie was taken in by the family after coming down from Queensland at the age of 13 after driving cattle. She recalled that her father spoke with fondness about Archie. And he also told her that he was a black tracker for the Deniliquin police. This sparked my interest and I delved into finding snippets of information about Archie. I was also contacted by uh, researchers that did a book about Archie in 2019, and also researchers from the State Library of Queensland who were doing a story about Aboriginal men that came from Queensland and their military history, in which I contributed the Bayless family photo. I will be supplementing my research with the research that was uncovered by those mentioned above, and of course I will be adding the links and the references to my Facebook page, Family History Mysteries, to acknowledge the work of others. Archibald Murphy was born in Wyandra, near Cunnamulla in Queensland, on the 24th of April 1888. When Archie enlisted in World War I, he put his birth date as the 20th of April 1886, but all other records point to 1888. There doesn't seem to be a formal record of his birth, However, from his marriage record, we know that his father was Harry Murphy, who was a station hand at Charlieville. Archie states that his father was deceased when he married in 1917, but other family tree records state that Harry died on the 1st of July 1919 at Nene Creek, near Moree, New South Wales. His mother was recorded as Clara Anderson, who was born in 1860 in Australia. Compulsory civil registration of births, deaths and marriages were introduced in Australia in the middle of the 19th century. In Queensland, it was 1856. This meant that people were required by law to register these events with government authorities. Despite this, events were sometimes not registered, particularly in remote and rural areas. In the early days of Australian colonisation, the churches alone were responsible for recording baptisms, weddings and burials within their jurisdictions. And these records were known as early church records or parish registers. Churches also continued to record events in parish registers after civil registration was introduced. 
In early times, births, deaths and marriage registrations were recorded by district registrars and then sent to a central register in the cities. Occasionally, these records never made it to the city. Births of Indigenous children were often not registered in order to protect them from removal policies. Large numbers of Indigenous people worked on pastoral stations, where events were recorded in station papers, diaries and resources, rather than the standard birth, death and marriage registrations. Sadly, many of these records have not survived because most stations were privately owned and preservations of documents relied on the individual owners. Olga Collis McInnispy, in her book Tracking Tracker Murphy, she recalls when she knew Archie Murphy as a child that her father said to her that Archie spoke in an Indigenous language with her father and that Archie was able to speak several Aboriginal dialects. And she mentions in the book, she recalls a conversation she had with her father when she asked about Archie and where he was from and where his family was. And he said, he himself doesn't know much about his birth either. His family was shifted from their traditional lands and this left a deep pool of forgetfulness in his mind. His memory of his early childhood is scanty. And she mentions how people of the area spoke at least four languages, the Kuma around the Nibine River, Kalilali around the Baku River Station, Bajiti along the mid Warrigo River and Mardigan on the Baku River North. It's believed that the Murdi, spoken by some of the pastoralists in the area, is a combination of these languages. However, no translators exist any longer. If Archie Murphy states in his enlisting papers that he hails from Wayandra near Kanamala, then it is plausible to think that he spoke at least one, if not all, of the languages of that area, as it was common in those days for an Aboriginal person to do so. It is known that some of the pastoralists learnt a smattering of all languages too. Hamilton Hume, the explorer, was fluent like this. And as I mentioned, at the age of 13, Archie was taken in by the Bayless family after he was driving cattle down from Queensland into New South Wales. And using his traditional skills, Murphy was later employed as a tracker with the New South Wales Police in Deniliquin and Hay. When he was with the Bayless family, Archie recalled to Olga Collis McInnespy in her book that he was asked if he could help the police identify footprints connected to a robbery on a remote farm. And this is how he got started tracking for the New South Wales Police. And in his talks to a young Olga, he, he recalls, when I was young, I worked as a stockman around Deniliquin. One day, the local policeman asked me if I could help him identify some footprints that may have been connected to a robbery that happened on a remote farm, and that's how I got started. And there is an article in the Hay Quarter Sessions on the 24th of May, 1914, titled, Alleged Maliciously Damaging Property. At the above court on Tuesday, before his honour, acting Judge Bevan, James Brown was charged with maliciously damaging 600 wheat bags and 1,800 bushels of wheat at Argoyle near Tokemall on the 25th of December. Mr Wilkinson appeared for the accused, who challenged two jurors. The Crown Prosecutor, in outlining the case, stated that someone had gone onto a share farmer's land and ripped a great number of bags of wheat open. It was a terrible thing to do, and the thing for the jury to decide was to whether the accused was the man who did the act. Archie Murphy, a tracker attached to the New South Wales Police Force, gave evidence of accompanying Sergeant Byrne on a search for tracks on the public road and wheat paddock. The footprints were similar to those made by the accused, 
The toes were turned out to a great extent and the man walked heavily on his heels. The tracks about the wheat bags were exactly the same as those made by the accused boots. Joseph H. Nelson, a share farmer, stated that the wheat was the property of his brother Kennedy and himself. He had known the accused for three years, with whom he was friendly. The loss was 26 pounds, about 600 bags were out. It appears that the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Archie knew the man was guilty, but the judge said that the jury had probably returned the safer verdict. And Archie says to the young Olga, I reckon the man was guilty. Tracks don't lie. I can tell you by looking at a footprint how big the shoe is, how heavy the person is, and what he did while he was there. And it's not just footprints. At times the direction where a twig in the bush is broken can tell me if the person was coming or going in the direction of the tracks. Easy, he said. There is nothing easy about tracking though, just plenty of experience, a good nose, heaps of dogged determination, and of course a native instinct. In the 1913-1914 Deniloquin police files, Archie was described as a half-caste with usual address at Municola Reserve, but working in Deniloquin. Municola Reserve is located 40 kilometres northwest of Deniloquin. Municola was deemed a reserve from 1896 until 1962 and it operated as a government-run Aboriginal reserve administered by the Aborigines Inland Mission. In May 1917, there was a change in the Defence Force Act where an Aboriginal had at least one non-Aboriginal parent or grandparent that could enlist. There was also another clause for enlistment officers. If they were satisfied that the person enlisting had grown up with and or worked with predominantly white people, they could be accepted. This was certainly the case for Archie with the links to my great-grandparents' family, the Bailasses. So Archie enlisted on the 30th of May, 1917. So once he was allowed to, he was keen to enlist virtually straight away. He enlisted in Hay, New South Wales at the age of 31 as part of the Riverina Light Horse Contingent due to his stockman background as he had horse riding skills. His particular stated he was five foot six inches and his religion was Church of England. His next of kin, who was a friend, was Lily Briggs of Deniliquin. Briggs is a well-known Aboriginal name in Deniliquin. This record was altered to state his next of kin as his wife, Daisy Martha Lewis, married him in Narendra in 1917. Daisy's address as next of kin was listed as living at Colin Ruby at Narendra. Archie was allotted to the 34th reinforcements for the 6th Light Horse in the Riverine Grazier, which is a Hay New South Wales newspaper on the 1st of June 1917. It states, Mr. Archie Murphy, who has been connected with the local police as tracker for some time, has enlisted and leaves Hay for camp tomorrow morning. Thousands of Indigenous Australians volunteered for service during the First and Second World Wars, despite the laws that often prevented them from doing so. Despite lack of recognition of rights, denial of citizenship, and concerted efforts at exclusion, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have served in conflicts involving Australian defence contingents since Federation. When the First World War broke out in 1914, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had few rights, poor living conditions, and were not allowed to enlist in the war effort. Despite this, many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people wanted to serve in the defence of Australia and were willing to change their names, birth locations, heritage and nationality in an effort to do so. Many who tried to enlist were rejected on the grounds of race, 
but many slipped through the net. They served on equal terms and were paid the same rate as non-Indigenous soldiers, but when they returned home, they often found that the discrimination hadn't gone away. Quite often they would enlist and say that they were a New Zealander Maori or they were from Papua New Guinea in order to enlist. When the Second World War broke out 20 years later, Indigenous Australians were still not legally allowed to enlist, but many did so. In 1940, the Defence Committee decided the enlistment of Indigenous Australians was neither necessary nor desirable, partly because they believed white Australians would object to serving with them. When Japan entered the war, however, the increased need for manpower forced the loosening of restrictions, and thousands of Indigenous Australians enlisted and served. Archie Murphy's long history of service represents one of the first known Aboriginal men serving the community in uniform in opposition to the government policies and restrictions that were in place. His service is a clear indication that Aboriginal people were willing to serve and that they tried various means to retain their identity and culture in a changing world. Archie attended the Light Horse Training Camp at Menangle Park in Sydney. His training had not been without incident. He fractured his hand in October 1917 and had also been admitted to hospital with measles and bronchitis in the November. He was punished for two instances while in the training camp, one for assault, which he got 14 days, and one for language, in which he got detention. He embarked from Sydney for overseas service on board the RMS Amond on the 2nd of March 1918 and arrived in the Suez on the 4th of April. He marched out to Maiskar the same day and spent four weeks with the 2nd Light Horse Training Regiment. Maiskar was the name given to the military camp near the town of Ismailia in northeastern Egypt. On the 10th of June 1918, he joined his regiment at Solomon's Pools, southwest of Bethlehem, a Palestinian town south of Jerusalem in Israel. The Light Horse Regiments took part in extended patrols around the Jordan Valley in 1918, before the surrender of the Ottoman Empire in the October. He was sent to Wadi Hanin in Palestine on the 28th of October 1919. On the 25th of November, he was recorded as sustaining slight injuries from a fall of his horse at Wadi Hanin. He was completing an authorised regimental sports meeting in the best section of Light Horseman over hurdles event and unsuccessfully tried to jump a hurdle. He had contusions or cuts on the back of his neck and his left scapula or shoulder blade region. In Ogger's book, Trucker Murphy, the following battles were recorded that Archie was involved in. The First and Third Battle of Gaza, Bathsheba, Jerusalem, Jericho. He discussed with Olga that was where he injured his leg and Palestine. And in Olga's book, she recalls a conversation that she had with Archie when he had a sudden pain in his leg and it made him groan and he slapped his leg hard a couple of times and then closed his eyes before attempting to stand up again. And as a little girl, she offers her hand and he lets her pull him up. And he says to her, it's shrapnel. A grenade exploded close to me and bits of it stayed inside me. And she asked what a grenade was. And he explained that it's a small metal bomb that explodes when you throw it, looks like a pine cone. The explosion breaks the metal into tiny sharp pieces that fly everywhere. And he stretches his arms out a couple of times to show the action of the grenade. Ugly things they are, 
Each tiny piece of broken metal is called shrapnel, and if you're unlucky as I was, one or many of those tiny pieces dig into your flesh, and they don't come out either. Painful, I tell you. And she asked when it happened, and he said early in 1918 in the Middle East. We had a big fight in a place called Besheba, and from there we fought in Gaza and then in Jericho, and that's where I was wounded, at the Pool of Solomon. They put me in hospital in Egypt, but I didn't stay long. We had to finish that war. Many of us were injured, but we all went back into battle right up to Jerusalem. And there is a photo of him on the steps of the hospital with other men in the war that I'll attach to my Facebook page photos for this episode. Interestingly, in the military records of Archie, it doesn't mention the shrapnel injury specifically in his military records. So that was interesting when reading Olga's book that 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 came up. On the 23rd of December 1918, he contracted malaria and stayed in hospital for one month. The men of the 6th Light Horse remained in Egypt during the first half of 1919, assisting with security during the Egyptian uprising against British rule. His military records said that he sailed from Kantara, Egypt, to Australia on the 28th of June 1919 on the Madras, and he again contracted malaria on the ship. In notes from the Deniliquin Historical Society, it states that Archie was noted as a champion boxer on this ship that brought him back from the war. He arrived in Australia on the 3rd of August 1919 and was discharged on the 11th of September 1919 with disability due to the two bouts of malaria. Unfortunately, the recognition, camaraderie and equality experienced in their battalions in the war did not continue once they returned to Australia. The RSL, the Returned Servicemen's League, refused to acknowledge Aboriginal soldiers. Under the Protection Act, many returned soldiers had to return their uniforms and medals, denying them the opportunity to pass these down to their children and grandchildren. The official war history book by C.E.W. Bean only recognises one Aboriginal soldier. None of the estimated 1,200 to 1,500 soldiers of Aboriginal descent were acknowledged. After the war, Murphy returned to his work as a police tracker in Deniliquin. The Riverine Grazier, the Echuca paper, mentions on the 19th of March 1920 that Archie had returned from war to their surprise as they thought that he had been killed at war. In notes on Archie from the Deniliquin Historical Society, he was mentioned as one of the most notable trackers due to his years of service and he was also noted for being intelligent, active and an expert bushman. Olga recollected in her book that one day she asked Archie, are these your boots? And he said, yes, they are, little miss. And she said, they're so heavy. And he said, they have to be going to the places where I've taken them. I wore these boots during the war, the Second World War. Was there a first one? Asked Olga as a nine-year-old. Oh, yes, I went to the first one too, but those boots perished a long time ago. They got holes and cracks and the soles were no good, but they served me for years and years when I was a police tracker and I buried them in the bush near Deniliquin. You buried your boots? She asks, astonished. They were my friends. I couldn't just throw them away. And she giggles and then thinks of the shoes of his friends and then she asks, did you put a cross on them? All burials need a cross, she thinks. And he said, no, but I know where they are. So... Interesting for Deniliquin residents to, who knows, maybe someone's uncovered an old pair of boots and didn't know the significance of them. 
And once he returned from the war, they had a son, Percy William Robert Murphy, and he was born in 1924 in Deniliquin. More about Percy later. On Friday the 20th of November 1925, an article featured in the local newspaper in Deniliquin. Timely rescue. A drowning tragedy was narrowly averted on Saturday afternoon last, between 3 and 3.30 p.m. Owing to the presence of mind of police tracker Archie Murphy, in going to the assistance of four bathers who were in serious difficulties in the river at the spot near the jail. Mr Murphy decided to inspect the pontoon, which is being built for the use of children learning to swim, and he had been leaning on his bicycle for about 10 minutes near the women's dressing shed when he noticed three girls and a boy in difficulty. He was fully dressed with coat, police riding trousers, leggings and boots, but Murphy realised that there was no time to be lost and, divesting himself of coat and hat only, went to the rescue. Fortunately, he had only to swim three or four yards from the bank, as when he reached the drowning girls and boy, they were going under for the third time. Those rescued were Dory, daughter of Mr W Luke, Doris, daughter of Mr Morrow, Hilda, daughter of Mr George McClucky, and Hector, son of Mr Charles Campbell. Young Campbell, who had gone to the rescue, had hold of two of these girls but was powerless and all three were under the water. Murphy caught hold of one of the girls and pulled them in towards the bank. Then after seeing them in safety, he rescued the girl McClucky. It was a momentous few minutes and there was a sigh of relief from the screaming girls who watched the proceedings when it was seen that Mr Murphy had got them safely to the bank. We have been requested by the young ladies above mentioned to extend their heartfelt thanks to Mr Murphy. They all agreed that it had not been for his promptness in effecting their rescue, they would have been drowned. Another request has been made to us. The swimming club is also a life-saving club and affiliated with the Royal Society of New South Wales but the latter designation is of little use unless steps are taken to have some capable person to attend the river every day, say from the hour when pupils from the two schools are dismissed for the day. The name of Mr Murphy has been suggested to us and we understand he is prepared at a remuneration to undertake the duties provided permission is obtained from Inspector Ross and we have no doubt it will be given. This matter is one of urgency and it is hoped that the members of the club will be called together to deal with the question without delay and arrangements made with the district and convent schools to contribute towards the cost. Many years ago, Deniliquin had a representative of the Royal Humane Society, but there is not at present. We urge upon the Municipal Council to take the matter up and that Mr Murphy's brave act be brought before the Society when no doubt it will be recognised either by a certificate or bronze medal. It might be mentioned that Tracker Murphy is a returned soldier with two years and three months active service in the Great War. Three months later, in February 1928, it was announced that Archie was a recipient of an inscribed gold medal from the father of a girl that he had saved from drowning on that day. Olga recounts in her book a conversation that she had with Archie when she asked about the medals that were on his shelf in his Gaduga home. And she recalls Archie showing her this inscribed gold medal, as well as his war medals. 
Later on in the year, on the 15th of December 1928, another article from the paper Country Cities and Towns mentions Archie as delinquent's pontoon attendant for the local swimming hole where children learn to swim. And it mentions how Archie was instrumental in saving many lives in the last three years. So it was lovely to hear that not only was he acknowledged with a medal for his bravery, but they did indeed employ him to supervise that pontoon. Archie was a member of the Deniliquin Swimming Club and was an outstanding underwater swimmer. He could swim up to 100 yards or 90 metres underwater. When the club travelled to Barham for a carnival, they banned Archie from the swimming baths as he was an Aboriginal. The other Deniliquin swimmers decided they weren't going to participate if Archie couldn't. The decision was reversed and Archie could compete. Archie lived in a small cottage that was attached to the police station in Deniliquin in Harding Street. The cottage in later years was demolished to make way for additions to the police station. On the 5th of June 1928, the Echuca paper, The Riverine Herald, stated that as of the 1st of July, Archie's services were no longer required as a police tracker. It states that there was vigorous protest in regards to the decision. The article states that Archie was connected with the force for around 18 years and he served two years in the AIF. It also states that Archie enjoyed the distinction of being the only tracker in the state to volunteer for service with the AIF. It was reported in newspaper articles that Archie was a police tracker in Orange in New South Wales, and this is recorded from 1930. So it seems that once his services weren't rendered in the Deniliquin and Echuca district, that he moved up to Orange in order to continue his role it looks like Daisy didn't go with him up to Orange. She had family in Dedeliquin and the records that I'm finding of Daisy state that she's still in Dedeliquin. Whilst Archie was in Orange, he helped solve a number of high profile cases that were reported in local newspapers and was responsible for clever work during investigations into crimes such as theft of mail bags from a train traveling between Cower and Blaney. He sends a letter to the AIF on the 2nd of May 1939 as he had mislaid his discharge papers. It states his address as Care of Walsh Brothers in Coswell Street, Peak Hill, New South Wales. However, by the 9th of June, the letter had another forwarding address, Care of Post Office at Tullamore, New South Wales, near Parks. However, the letter came back unclaimed. So it seems by 1939, Archie has gone off the map, so we speak. In the 1930s, there was a growing pressure to have the World War I Aboriginal soldiers recognised. The first Aboriginal Day of Mourning was held in Sydney in 1938, and around this time, the first written record of Aboriginal soldiers was compiled. Approximately 300 names were published in the Revelli magazine, which was an RSL publication. Archie volunteered once more. He served as a private in the Volunteer Defence Corps in World War II, he enlisted on the 22nd of April 1942 and states that his son is his next of kin and that he's a station manager at Gaduga. Olga mentions in her book that her father told her that Archie had worked with him at Bangate, which was a station property at Gaduga. He states he's a single widower. However, as I mentioned just earlier, Daisy was living in Deniliquin and she certainly was living in Deniliquin in 1958. So I'm unsure why 
he's decided to state himself as a widower on these records. Archie's son Percy also enlisted in June 1942 and again uh, there's evidence that Daisy uh, was well and surely alive because Percy had his mother as his next of kin, D.M. Murphy, care of the Globe Hotel, Dinalekland. Archie was discharged on the 20th of August 1943 and he was granted a soldier settlement block at Gaduga after the war. He lost his army badge and requested another in 1960, stating he was living in Gaduga. And there was a study of contemporary Aboriginal architecture in northwestern New South Wales done by the University of Queensland in 1996. And Archie is mentioned in the Gaduga Reserve households of the 1940s at the tin camp at Gaduga. And it states that House 34, Archie Murphy, Digger, as he was known, lived on a return soldier's block, which had been granted to him originally from Wellington near Dubbo. The displacement of Aboriginal people by European settlers led to a formation of the Gaduga camp in 1896 on the Gaduga town common. It became increasingly popular in the 1930s as it allowed people to maintain their independence. The tin camp is used for family gatherings, there's access to the Bakara River, and they use it for cultural and educational purposes. There is also a memorial for the local Aboriginal soldiers who fought in World War II. So just a little more information with Daisy. So we do know that Archie was in Orange in 1930. For Daisy, she was listed as living at the Old Brick Kilns in North Dinaliquin. So that was near the commons where quite a few Aboriginal people in Dinaliquin lived. And she was there from 1930 to 1937. From 1943 to 1949, her address is listed at the Globe Hotel in Dinaliquin. And then from 1954, and the 1958 census, 94 George Street, Dinaliqua. It is clear from Olga's book that Archie had an impact on young Olga, who she describes as a really lovely gentleman, and she was devastated when family circumstances caused them to lose contact. At the time that Archie would have been at Gaduga, he was living in a small hut made of corrugated iron. It had no connection to sewerage, or electricity or running water and there was no transport support. It was three kilometres out of town. She was instructed not to call him Digger Murphy but Mr Murphy and to hold him as a respected elder and a returned Aboriginal serviceman. Olga recounts how she found Mr Murphy in the yard polishing his leather boots, saddle and bridle. When the child asks where his horse is, his eyes fill with tears. Should he tell her it was a police horse he had to return when he left his job as a New South Wales police trucker? Or the fate of the horse he rode in battle in the Middle East, one of the famous whalers of World War I? Could he tell Olga he was ordered to shoot his own horse? Young Olga's mum got Mr Murphy's groceries, a small tin of powdered milk, a tin of Spam and cigarettes. She lent him flour and a bit of salt for Johnny Cakes. The trust built between young and old and the stories trickled out. Her aim of her book was to give Australians a chance to know how an almost forgotten Aboriginal soldier lived a courageous life, why he deserved to be honoured, and to make people realise the number of times when neighbours are angel unawares, people who distinguished themselves in the theatres of war, yet lay forgotten. Archie Murphy died in Walgett Hospital in 1979, 
After being granted the soldier settlement block at Kaduga after the war, he remained in the town until his death at the age of 91. He was buried in an unmarked grave at Kaduga. Kaduga is a small town. It's about 20 kilometres south of the Queensland border. In August 2019, Indigenous and civic leaders and children from surrounding schools, military veterans and a film crew descended on Kaduga, and they were in town to celebrate the life of Truck and Murphy and to express concern that his grave in Gaduga Cemetery had no headstone. The ceremony comes up that it would be 40 years after Mr Murphy had died. And there is now a lovely memorial and gravestone for Archie Murphy. A little about his son, Percy. Percy was born in 1924 in and uh, well, at least that's what it states on the New South Wales births, deaths and marriages. He enlisted in World War II, and the reason why I say at least that's why it states it is that his enlistment papers said he was born in 1916 in Deniliquin. And his family did validate that he did that like a lot of men did, just to try and uh, ensure that he was very safe within the cut-off age for enlistment. When he enlisted, he was a labourer at Berrigan in New South Wales, and that's where he enlisted in June 1940. He was reported as absent for duty at Bathurst on the 23rd of June 1941 and pending further investigation, he was declared an illegal absentee on the 15th of July 1941. In fact, Percy went to Victoria to join up at the same time as his cousins. So he has two World War II records. Interestingly, in his second record, he states that he was born on the 1st of July 1915 at Denelequin, one year earlier than the previous record. He enlisted at the Melbourne Town Hall on the 30th of June 1941 and he is listed as William Robert Murphy, not Percy, William Robert Murphy. He stated he was a truck driver and single at the time of his enlistment and he stated he was living at 10 Gillies Street, Fairfield, Victoria. He named his mother, Daisy Martha Murphy, as his next of kin, care of O'Shea's Globe Hotel Deniliquin, like he did in his previous record. And he served in Malaya from the 17th of September 1941 until the 12th of October 1945. He embarked from Sydney on the 17th of September 1941 on the JJ Sydney and arrived in Singapore on the 5th of October. He was sent to Malaya on the 27th of October and was promoted from private to assistant corporal. He was reported missing on the 16th of February 1942 and was then reported as a prisoner of war on the 15th of September 1943. He was reverted back to the rank of private on the 18th of November 1945, just prior to his return to Victoria. It was quite common for Aboriginal servicemen, they elevated with their rank, that it was reverted back to the most basic prior to when they returned. Percy was discharged on the 21st of December 1945 and he listed at his forwarding address as George Street, Deniliquin. He was registered in the census in Deniliquin as a labourer in 1943 and a hairdresser in 1949. He had a salon in Cressy Street, Deniliquin that was in front of the billiard saloon. His grandson Ellen informed me that Percy also worked at sawmills. I found a Percy William Robert Murphy working at Croydon in Victoria as a sawyer and there's also a record at Mansfield in Victoria in 1963. The Deniliquin Historical Records has an entry from a local person outlining Percy and he is referred to as Bob Murphy. 
So he was known as Bob to the locals. He married Joyce Margaret Bolton. I cannot find a marriage record, but they are recorded on the 1963 census in Deniliquin, with Percy having no occupation at that time. Percy died in Deniliquin on the 21st of October 1971 and is buried out at the Deniliquin Cemetery. Olga described Archie as a kind, gentle, softly spoken man. His speech was of an educated man, and Olga described Archie as an outstanding human being. I hope you enjoyed listening to my story on Archie, and I'm pleased that I have allowed his story to be heard by others as well. The photos and links that I have in my own family tree and others from their research and Olga's book will be on my Facebook page, Family History Mysteries. And if you have a mystery to solve or an interesting story that you would like me to cover in a future episode, please message me through my Facebook page. If you need help researching your family tree, I would love to help you out. Again, send me a message on my Facebook page.